You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. On today's episode, I speak with Spencer Greenberg, who's founder and CEO of SparkWave, a startup foundry. You might call it a venture studio or a company builder. They create new software companies from scratch designed to help solve big problems in the world. We discuss how to have startup ideas, how to evaluate them, and what does it mean to do good? How do you think about your values? We talk about recruiting for your startup, advice for aspiring entrepreneurs, and how you design good metrics and KPIs for a startup. A little bit more on his bio, he's done a lot of projects, including creating a nonprofit clear thinking, which creates free tools for helping you make better decisions, guided track, which is a platform for building behavioral change interventions and complex social science studies, positively, a platform for recruiting study participants for human subjects research, either for social science or product research, Uplift, which is an automated app for helping with depression, MindEase, which is an app for anxiety, ThoughtSaver, a tool for helping you remember everything important that you learn, and probably others that I haven't mentioned. He has a PhD in applied math from NYU and recently launched a podcast called Clear Thinking with Spencer Greenberg. I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation, so stay tuned. Spencer, welcome to Startups for Good. It's great to have you on. I'm really excited to be here. So I find your background to be so fascinating and you're working on so many different projects. I'm kind of wondering where to start, but maybe we could start with how did you decide to become a founder? Yeah, you know, for me, I've always wanted to use technology to improve people's lives. I remember when I was a little kid, I kind of imagined that I'd be some kind of like inventor creating steampunk machines to improve people's lives. And then later that became robots. And then later that became, uh, you know, eventually software. And so that's that's where I am today. So I feel like I've really just been on the same path. And it's just I've just gotten smarter about what that path looks like. Um, so I think that was always in the cards for me of like, how do I create new technology? And uh, this is just my latest incarnation of my, you know, childhood dream. Cool. And what are some of the projects you're working on these days? Right. So I run a startup foundry called SparkWave. And being a startup foundry, what we do is we create new companies completely from scratch based on our own ideas. And then if they're sufficiently promising after we've built the initial version, we'll recruit a CEO with the goal of spinning them out into their own companies. So that is contrasted from an accelerator, which you know people often confuse the two. Accelerators you know, usually work with a company that already exists and kind of help them by giving office space or giving advice or money or things like that. So, um, so that's what we do. And then because our nature is to create new projects from scratch, uh, we have a bunch of things going on. Um, so one of them is Uplift, which is a app that we created to help cure depression. So the idea is to give people evidence-based tools that they can use um, to cure their own depression, uh, uh, either on their own or as an adjunct to working with a therapist and that kind of thing. So that's that's one company that we spun out. Another company that we've spun out is called MindEase. And the idea of MindEase is to try to be the best app in the world for helping people manage their anxiety symptoms. So if you're fairly really, feeling really anxious, you can uh, download MindEase and um, it will try to help you feel better and then give you a bunch of 
tools you can also use to better understand your anxiety in the future. Um, so those are two of our projects. And those are both in the area of what, of what we think of as applied social science. So we're trying to take ideas from social science and bring them into people's lives to help improve, uh, improve their lives, improve their thinking, improve their decision making, uh, make them feel better. Um, and so that's kind of like a big chunk of our work. Uh, another example project in that area is a website we created called clearerthinking.org. And we have about 40 free tools and training programs you can use to cover many topics like forming a new positive habit, making a better decision, learning about how to avoid cognitive biases, things like that. So that's all in applied social science. And then the other big area we work in is what we think of as accelerating social science. So how do we make social science go faster so we can better answer important questions about how to make humans happier, how to help humans make better decisions and so on. And so on that side, we have uh, one project called Positly. The idea is basically making it really easy to recruit people for a study. So if you need 120 people with sleep problems and you need to divide them into three groups and track them for a month as they do different things, like we want to make that kind of research much faster and cheaper. Uh, and then another project in that in that area is called Guide to Track, which is a new language we created for building behavioral interventions. So let's say you want to make a meditation app or you want to make a uh, tool to help people think through their decisions. We want to make it incredibly fast and easy to make that kind of tool and launch it in the world and get feedback. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. How do you keep track of all of that and manage your time? Yeah, so definitely a challenge. But the way that I think about it is I want to make sure to have some time meeting with each team every week. So I basically will, will have those kind of weekly meetings. And then I want to make sure that as projects have sudden demands for, for um, like something really important is going on, then I have enough time to kind of devote to that uh, to make sure that I can help it in any way I can. Um, so, you know, if one project is in the middle of something really essential, you know, I'll be I'll be much more focused on that for a week. And then, you know, next week, maybe, okay, it's not as, you know, there's nothing as uh, serious going on. And then I'll kind of split my time more evenly. And some of these are for-profit tech startups and some of them are nonprofit projects, right? Yeah, so clearthinking.org, we've always run it as a not-for-profit, uh, basically just as a public service to try to help people better understand themselves, reduce bias and, um, and make better decisions, things like that. Um, the other ones are for-profit startups. And how do you get the ideas for these startups? So I'm someone that thinks of ideas as something that you can learn to do. I, I really view it as a muscle you have to practice. So for example, my brother and I used to have a game we would play where every other day we'd exchange sending an, a business idea we came up with to each other via email. And I would use a timer uh, to try to see how fast I would come up with the idea. And so, you know, I'd be like, okay, I need an idea. And I, and I would uh, find it really helpful to like narrow it. So instead of just saying, come up with a business idea, I'd be like, okay, today I'm going to come up with a business idea that is something that fits in your pocket and helps you at work or something like that. Right. And then I would brainstorm around that and come up with an idea. And so we got to about a hundred ideas. Then we went through them and, and analyzed them and discarded most of them, because most of them were really bad. And then some of them were kind of more interesting. And so that's the way I think about it is like, my ideal is to have hundreds of ideas and then you quickly eliminate the bad ones. And then uh, the ones that you can't kill because you know, you're like, you keep trying to eliminate them. And you're like, ah, oh, this just seems like there's actually maybe something here. Uh, those are the ones you can do more investigation on. Yeah, I really like this idea of quantity is a way to generate quality ideas. And that that's where creativity comes from also is from those constraints you were talking about. So when you're yeah, evaluating like, them, you're, you're trying to kill them. How, how do you do that? Yeah, so there, there are a number of different criteria I think about. And it's not so formulaic where like I'm not like plugging through an algorithm to the side. But uh, some of the criteria are, one, if this idea succeeds, would it be a really big deal, right? And it's like, well, if it, even if it succeeded, if it wouldn't be a really big deal, um, then like 
that's probably not a great idea. And by a big deal for what I really care about is producing value in the world. So I want the world to be substantially better off for this thing existing than if the thing didn't exist. And, uh, and so for me, you know, that comes down to like, are people's lives better? Do people have better understanding of the way the world works? Do they believe more true things rather than false things? Do people suffer less? Those are the, the kinds of values that I'm trying to optimize for. So that, that's one really important criteria. A second one is thinking about the causality. Like if we don't do this, is someone already going to do this like almost as well or as well? Because what's the point if you're trying to produce value in the world and someone else is, is like, already doing it as well or about to do it as well, then maybe you're actually not producing much value causally. Like, you know, it's, you know, it's sort of the, this conundrum where it's like, if you're a doctor and you feel like you saved someone's life, then there's a question, well, like, would they just have gone to an equally good doctor who would have also saved their life? Like, ideally, in the best form, you want to do stuff that not only are you helping people, but you're helping people in a way that wouldn't have been helped. So, so that's the second criteria. A third is, are we really the right people to do it? Like, do we have, and that, that kind of breaks down to two things. One, do we have a, a promising seeming hypothesis about how to do this really well that others don't seem to be pursuing? And then second, do we have a relevant skill set? And so we limit ourselves just to software because that's kind of our expertise. We don't go into hardware and things like that because then we'd be playing to our weaknesses rather than our strengths. And you're someone who I think of as having a really well-developed sense of your personal ethics. I'd love it if you could chat a little bit more about how you think about that value. It's not purely just utilitarian. It's a broader sense of value, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, so basically, uh, the best way to talk about this I know of is actually to relate it to a program we made for clearthinking.org. It's called our intrinsic values test. And you can actually go do it online. It's free. So you search intrinsic values test. And basically what it does is it asks you many, many questions about things that you value. And it breaks them into things you don't value on the first hand. Second hand, things that you value, but not intrinsically. So for example, most people value having money, but imagine that you couldn't get anything else for money. Right? You couldn't use it to buy anything. You couldn't use it to impress anyone, et cetera. Then most people, I think, would say, oh, it actually doesn't have value as a means to an uh, it only has value as a means to an end, not an end of itself. So then intrinsic values are the values you have that are uh, ends in and of themselves. Like, and, and so a good example of this would be pleasure, right? If you, if you, you said, uh, you know, I did that thing and I really enjoyed it. I got a lot of pleasure out of it. And someone said, well, why do you care about having pleasure? You'd be like, what do you mean? Why do I care? I just care about you know, feeling good. And so the, the intrinsic values are the things that you kind of care about fundamentally. And so that that's kind of my frame on how I think about values. And then we actually did a bunch of research to try to figure out what are all the different intrinsic values humans have. So we looked at what psychologists had said about this, what philosophers had said, what career coaches, and then we actually ran our own study where we had, we put people through a little training program to teach them about intrinsic values and we had them submit what they thought theirs are. And we got 3000 submissions and then we deduplicated them and categorized them. So through all this research, we ended up coming up with 22 categories of intrinsic values. And not to say that all humans have something that, that's in these 22, but we, we think this covers a lot of what humans care about. And it, it spans everything from lack of suffering and happiness to longevity, like living a long time, to satisfaction, like, like meeting your goals, uh, to being a virtuous person, like so living with integrity, uh, and a number of other things as well. And do you consider yourself an effective altruist? My thinking is, is definitely uh, very much aligned with effective altruists. Whether I'm actually an effective altruist, uh, you know, I would say maybe aspiring. But um, basically, the, w the way I think about that is that effective altruism, for those who don't know, is a movement of people that are trying to figure out, how do I do the most good? Right. If I'm donating, how do I do the most good with my donations? If I'm uh, volunteering, how do I do the most good with my volunteering, et cetera, which I think is a wonderful project. And I'm, I'm super on board with that project and kind of that community. 
I think insofar as I deviate from the way effective altruists think is that they, they tend to be a bit more utilitarian. In other words, they're thinking about value purely in terms of happiness and suffering, which is something that I care a lot about as well. But I also care about other things. Like, for example, I care about spreading truth in, you know, irrespective of just the happiness and suffering consequences. Um, I also care about equality. Like, you know, I'd rather have a world where utility was spread more equally and I'd be willing to sacrifice a little bit of total utility to make it spread more equally, et cetera. So I think around the edges, we do have some disagreements, but in many ways, you know, our thinking is aligned. I'm curious how you think your academic background influences the work you do now. Yeah, so I have a PhD in mathematics uh, and my specialty was in sort of the mathematics around machine learning and AI. I think that math provides some lenses on the world that I think are just incredibly powerful. And I wish that more people learn them without having to go through the grueling process of doing a PhD. Um, one of those is a kind of optimization mindset. In mathematics, there's this theory of mathematical optimization where the, the kind of abstract idea is that you have some function and you're trying to find the input to it that maximizes the output. So like, what can I stick into that function that gives me the biggest result? And um, the way to visualize this, kind of to use your visual brain, is to imagine a mountain landscape and um, the height, the, like the, the, the Z vertical axis is like the output of the function. And then the location, like the X, Y axis on the landscape is the input to the function. And so basically you can reframe this as like, find the top of the mountain, right? That's, that's the uh, intuitive reframing of the mathematical optimization problem. And in mathematics, you learn about these different approaches to trying to find the top of the mountain, essentially. And, and in everyday life, this might be, oh, I want to create a startup that makes the most money, or I want to create a nonprofit that produces the most uh, benefit to people, et cetera, right? That's the landscape you're playing on. You're trying to find the top of the mountain. And I think actually the mathematics gives some insight about different approaches to doing this. Uh, so for example, one very classic approach in, in the mathematical world is this idea of gradient ascent, where basically you're standing somewhere on the mountain, you look around just right where you're standing and say, which direction is the mountain sloping up the fastest, right where I'm standing, find the direction sloping up the fastest and take one little tiny step in that direction. And then again, repeat, look around where you're standing and then take another tiny step going up the fastest. And you can prove that on certain types of landscapes, this will actually get you to the top of the highest peak, but you can also prove that on other types of landscapes actually won't. You'll get stuck on the top of a hill, but it won't necessarily be the highest hill. Um, so that's just one thing that I think about, but it gives me a lens of looking at like the grand project of optimization and like what are you trying to achieve and, and the different approaches to try to get to the top of the mountain. So with these startups that you're founding in SparkWave, what is it that you're trying to maximize? What is the optimization problem you're solving? I think of it as each one has a different objective. So for Uplift, the goal is how do we reduce depression the most possible? And that's gonna then, you, you take that goal and then it gets broken immediately into a product of two things. One is reaching as many people as possible. The other is for each person improving their depression as much as possible, right? So it's like number of people reach times depression reduced per person. And then you can keep subdividing that further because then you're like, well, if someone only like starts the app but doesn't use it for more than you know one day, they're probably not gonna get the benefit. So then you now get a retention uh, factor that's gonna appear there, which is like uh, you know number of people that use it times a fraction of those that use it that actually stick with it long enough to get the benefit times the benefit you get if you stick with it. And then I just keep doing that subdivision, breaking it more and more and more. And that's where all the kind of sub goals and sub metrics fall out of. Gotcha. You didn't mention revenue, profit, you know, return to shareholders. 
Is that not part of the calculation? Right. So the way I think about it is we want to align our business model very early on with the benefit we're creating in the world and for our users. So that because what, what I find is that there's a major problem in social startups that like are trying to do good where they don't get a very aligned business model early so that the, the like doing good is like dislocated from the making money. And then what happens is because startups are like always like, or almost always just on the edge of death constantly, you know, it's like playing a chess match where you like begin the match, you know, in check and almost in checkmate, right? That's like, you know, doing startups. So what happens is they'll be like, well, do we do this thing that makes money or do we do the thing that does good? And it's like, well, we're about to die. Of course we have to do the thing that makes money, right? And so they're just constantly being pressured to do the thing that makes money, not the thing that, that they intended to do, which is doing good. So we try to align very early on the doing good with the making money so that then you can basically to a reasonable degree just slot in like profit or revenue as your kind of top line metric and that basically becomes a proxy for doing good um, but that that actually is you know you have to have a lot of care in that process to make sure that that's uh, actually working now you've used the pronoun we a few times i'm curious to understand the team that you have on Sparkwave working on the general studio level um, you know, obviously we've got teams for each of the startups, but just at that studio level, who do you have involved? Yeah. So the, we, I used to, <laughs> every time I use, we, I'm referring to different group of people, depending on what I'm talking about, this is easier to say we, but, um, each, each product has dedicated people working on it. Then we have a few cross-cutting roles that work across projects. So some of our research staff will work on multiple projects, um, where there's kind of research to be done. Uh, sometimes we have designers that work across many projects. Um, I also have like a re, you know a couple of research assistants that work across multiple projects, and then I work on all the projects essentially. Um, so yeah, I mean, but most of the team members of Sparkwave are actually dedicated to just focus on one thing. And how do you recruit the CEO or the co-founder for a particular project? What's been most successful for me so far has actually been inbound interest. So I basically I'll put the word out in different communities where there might be really high quality, like entrepreneurial uh, minded people. And uh, yeah, and I just get inbound. So that, that's that been most successful. And you know, I'm still experimenting with different approaches for that, but. Don't just listen, get engaged. Join our giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. And who knows, the startup that you fund may be on Startups for Good one day. You recently launched a podcast. How is that connected with your work? Yeah, so I've been thinking about doing a podcast for a long time. And uh, it's funny because, you know, now you're relaunching your podcast. I feel like we're maybe have similar thinking around this. But basically what I, I realized a few things. One is that there are a lot of ideas that I think are really valuable that are not widely known or not widely enough known. And so I was hoping that I could use the podcast as a way of help spreading ideas that I think are really valuable for society. You know, and those that's everything from how to think about doing good more effectively um, to epistemic norms about how to uh, better understand what's true and what's false and how to understand evidence. Uh, really, really just quite a lot of quite a lot of ideas that seem like they're not widely disseminated as they should be. And also ideas that help people improve their own personal lives as well. Um, so that was one major motivation. Another is I realized that there was a way to do the podcast that was both low risk and actually a lot of fun. Um, and so I 
was really lucky to be able to team up with my collaborator, Josh Castle, who was excited about being editor and producer on it. So suddenly like a whole big chunk of the work that was not the work that I wanted to be doing was he was willing to take on. So I got to focus on what I think is the fun part, which is finding the people who I really want to have conversations with and then trying to have uh, really interesting conversations with them uh, where we'll, we'll pick four or five ideas that they're excited to discuss per episode and really try to analyze them together. Not an interview and not a debate, really trying to build on what the other person's saying to kind of produce the best version of the ideas that we can. Um, so anyway, if anyone's interested, it's called Clearer Thinking with Spencer Greenberg. So we'd love to have you check it out. And uh, I've been enjoying it. I've been listening to it. Um, and I should be in an upcoming episode. So people can check yeah, that out. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to release that. I'm curious, how has your mission at Sparkwave helped you as a business? Well, I think that being mission oriented has a ton of advantages. And it's funny because I was just talking to some entrepreneurs two days ago and I was like giving them that they, basically this exact pitch, which is like, look, you guys seem like you really care about helping the world. Like I can tell that, right? When I talk to these guys, I can tell that they really care about helping the world. And yet the ideas that you're talking to me about, like are probably not going to help the world. They're probably going to be like kind of useless. Like even if you succeed, you might make money, but like they're not actually going to help anything. And so what I, what I was one thing I was saying to them is not only just focusing on like doing something that's uh, deeply meaningful, but just make your life a lot better because like you have a reason to wake up in the morning. You're not just like doing your you know crazy startup just to make money, which is you know ultimately you know okay great it might be great to make money, but ultimately that doesn't give you a reason to wake up in the morning. Um, but in addition, there are actually all these auxiliary side benefits. So one of them is it's easier to recruit because you could say that you can actually get people legitimately excited about the mission. Um, it's also easier to get positive press because. Journalists like will tend to recognize, oh yeah, these, these people are actually trying to do good in the world. They're not just like out for themselves, right? Um, there's also, it can help with uh, getting investors because while you know, every investor wants to make money, the, you know, I think that there are quite a lot of investors that also care about doing good in their lives. You know, a lot of them have, have already made a lot of money and they want to give back too. And so if they, if they say, oh wait, you're actually trying to improve the world and I, like, I care about the good you're trying to do, that can be helpful too. So I just think there are all of these residual benefits from having a mission that are even just on, on the level of just like making it easier to do the things you need to do as a business. And what have been some of the challenges either with the mission part of it or more generally in business? I mean, you know, you're, you're someone who's been a three-time entrepreneur, so you know this uh, very well, but I just feel like startups, it's just a never ending series of difficulties. Like basically every few months, there's just a new challenge, a new difficulty, something new you haven't faced before. And it's just, it, I, you know, I tell when I'm, uh, when I'm talking to people about whether like is being a CEO really the right role for you, I have, you know, at first I want to tell them like, okay, here are some good things about it, but then I want to also make sure they understand what they're getting themselves into and like what a difficult challenge this is. And so one thing I like to say is like, okay, look, entrepreneurship is basically the world punching you in the face between ten and a hundred times, and the vast majority of people would give up after a few punches, right? So you have to be honest with yourself. Are you the sort of person that's willing to just get punched in the face over and over again, not knowing how many times it's going to happen and every time just rolling with it and, just, you know, and continuing on. So uh, to get a little bit more concrete, you know, so if like every few months or every six months, I feel like there's a new challenge in what we're doing. A lot of them we've overcome yet. There's sort of this endless stream of them ahead of us as well. Um, you know, so, you know, really early on, it was like, well, can we even like come up with good ideas for products? And then it was like, okay, I think we have ideas I think are, are really strong. Can we actually build a first version of them that's actually a plausible way of actually unlocking the value here? And then it's like, okay, we seem to be doing a pretty good job at that. 
can we recruit uh, high quality CEOs and, and so on? And, and at every step, people will tell you that you're going to fail. They'll tell you it's impossible, except your friends who will lie to you and tell you that it's great and it's going to be wonderful. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious, but like, you know, you'll get a combination of people being like optimistic just to support you, but they don't really believe it. And people who are like, yeah, that's impossible. You're going to fail. And, you know, you just soldier on and try to make it through. Wow. And why do it then? It's pretty harrowing. I mean, for uh, what I would say is that I'm not optimizing for my own personal happiness in life. That is part of what I that is part of what I optimize for, right? I do want to be happy, but I would be a happier person if I wasn't an entrepreneur. However, I live a much more deeply meaningful life than I would if I if I wasn't. In other words, I, part of what I'm a significant part of what I'm optimizing for is having a huge impact on the world. I want the world to be significantly better than it would have been if I hadn't existed, and so I put myself through you know a high degree of stress and difficulty, but for those goals that are deeply meaningful for me. Well said. What, what advice would you give to an aspiring founder? Oh my gosh, so many things. Can you be slightly more specific? <laughs> Which domain? Uh, oh, okay, here, here I'll, I, can, I can spit up a few things. One thing is that there are a lot of ways to come up with business ideas. And I often will encounter founders that seem like pretty uncertain about what they want to work on. They're like really excited to do entrepreneurship, but they kind of haven't like picked the thing yet. And, and I, I actually think that VCs often have this kind of like misleading view where they, when they, by the time they meet the founder, the founder is telling them the story like, this was the only thing I could ever work on. And it's like the manifestation of everything I've ever done before. But I honestly think it's, it's really generally not true that like our lives are just not linear in that way. And a lot of times that's just like a story they tell because they know they need to tell it that way. But in reality, if you'd like met that person a year before, they would be like, I really want to do entrepreneurship, but I'm not sure what to work on. I've got these ideas, but none of them are good enough. Um, so to me, I, I find that that's like a time when entrepreneurs um, can use a lot of advice. And just one piece of advice there is you're going to, if you go start a company, you're going to just spend a ridiculous amount of time executing on your idea. Whereas the actual ideation phase where you kind of come up with the idea, your original idea, it ends up being a very small fraction of the total time you spend working on it. Maybe it's like just, you know, 2% or something of the total time. So I think even doubling that time to go from 2% to 4% actually could be pretty wise to pick an idea that not only is a potentially better idea, but an idea that you like deeply care about. And actually, if you succeed, you'll actually add real value in the world instead of just doing something that makes you rich, but um, you know, doesn't actually uh, provide you with meaning. So that, that's one of my, I think, best pieces of advice for entrepreneurs. Yeah, I like that. So spend more time generating more ideas and be more selective on the one you choose, yet realizing that this is sort of a false standard of it having to somehow be deeply meaningful to you from the time you were two or something like that. Yeah, it's just it's just not going to be a linear like obviously you want to think about what are my passions, what are my skills, like what can that can bring to bear, but there's still going to be like 50 or 100 ideas you work on, you know, so even selecting for that, right? Um, you know, you occasionally get like an Elon Musk who, you know, allegedly like came up with the idea for Tesla in college or something. I, mean, I don't even know if that's true, but like that's the story people say, but you know, I don't think that's the standard thing. Yeah, and he wasn't the original founder either. He joined later. But I think yeah, that good point. So. I think these stories do get changed, polished. The founder myth, the story of how companies get started, um, I think is often misleading. I agree with you about this. And 
I think it's very common. I had a really weird experience around that, actually. Yeah, I, I think it's very common for people to decide that they want to start a business first and go in search of ideas. I, I once um, asked my research assistant to go investigate how many of the large tech startups were ended up doing the original idea that they were going to work on, right? Like they came up with an idea, was that what they stuck with or did they pivot, right? I, that's, I was curious about how common pivots were among the top companies. And she did a bunch of research and she showed me the results. And I was like, I know that this research is wrong because I happened to know details about some of the founding stories and I knew some of it was wrong. And I was like, this is really strange. Where did you get this information? And it turned out she'd used Wikipedia for a lot of it. A whole bunch of the Wikipedia pages for companies were had really misleading stories about their foundation. They basically had been whitewashed and changed in the Wikipedia article relative to the true founding story. That doesn't surprise me. I also think that people have the wrong impression about how you get early customers. I was just reading an article last night about how some of the largest consumer tech companies got their first thousand customers. And there's a lot of stuff that uh, sometimes talked about is doesn't scale. It's not some repeatable process that is, you know, seems magical. It's a lot of just one at a time reaching out to people one at a time, handing them flyers or uh, emailing them. People are surprised. I love Paul Graham's essay, Do Things That Don't Scale, if you've read that one. Yeah, that's part of what I was referring to. That's really nice. I I would just add to that. I I think that there can be, uh, there's on the one hand, this misleading view that like, oh, your method of acquiring customers has to be scalable right off the bat. And that's not true. Right. And that's what this thing, the, the essay, Do Things That Don't Scale, like points out really nicely. Um, on the other hand, I think there can be another failure mode, which is like, oh, I just need to go get people to use my thing. But that I think is not right either. The way I think about it is step one is build something people love. Step two is scale. And so the point of doing things that don't scale is so that you can learn from your, your first customer so you can build something they love. Right. If you're recruiting them, but then you're not making a product they love, then it's like, well, okay, you're just, you, you, the fact that it doesn't scale is actually just going to mean you neither grow nor do you uh, make a great product. Um, so, so it's really, I, I think of it as really a, a data loop. The getting customers in a non-scalable way is a data loop to learn what you need to learn about the product. And a lot of times just having 10 users, if they're willing to give you tons of feedback, that could be a great data loop. You don't necessarily need a thousand users right away. So how do you tell if, you've made a product that people love? Well, there, there are many things you can look at. Um, I mean, customer interviews are just indispensable, right? Um, that being said, there are a lot of challenges with them. There, people will bullshit you and you have to learn how uh, to, get, to have a conversation with a customer so you're getting really truly honest information. One of my favorite ways to do that is to flip the conversation from, because in normal social norms, you, you help a person by being nice, right? You tell them what they're doing is good and everything's great, et cetera. That's like the normal standard thing. So what I wanna do at a customer interview is flip the norm on its head and say that, look, we're trying to figure out why this product is not as good as it could be and how to make it better. We really need your help figuring out what's wrong with it and how to improve it so that you'll love it. And then now you flip the social norms. So now they're helping you not by telling you it's great and being nice. They're helping you by telling you it sucks and why, right? So that that's um, to me, one of the key components. Another is of course, just looking at how people are using it. When you get to the point that people love it, 
um, you should be able to start seeing that in the data, in the retention numbers and usage, tracking very carefully how people are using it, um, uh, you know, what kind of benefit, are they coming back, uh, and so on. I'd be curious, given your math background, for your perspective on two metrics which are popular these days. One is net promoter score, and two is the dissatisfaction, you know, how, what percentage of people would be very upset if they didn't have the product anymore? Yeah, so net promoter score, um, I, I feel like it's a somewhat random statistic. You know, if I was designing a way to measure how people felt about the product, I don't think I would design net promoter score. But what is useful about it is it's pretty standardized. So I think for that purpose, for as a benchmarking thing, it's a great metric because you can compare it against other products in your industry or, or other industries if you like. So just for that purpose, I think it's useful. Um, but it's a bit of but it's a bit of a weird metric. It's hard to even explain how it's calculated. I think a lot of people just get confused about it. Um, in terms of the one more thing about net promoter score, I think is really important to note. It depends a lot on what point in your funnel or what point in your product you ask people. Because let's say someone's used your product for five minutes and you try to collect the net promoter score, you're gonna get a very different number most likely than if you only ask it after someone's used your product for like 10 days and they've kept coming back again and again. So um, I think it's very important to think about when you're trying to measure these things, like who you actually, whose opinion do you actually care about? Do you care about the person who's just been in your product for 10 minutes or do you only care about the person who's been there 10 days or or what? Um, because you, there is no such thing as a net promoter score. It like completely depends on what group of people you're asking it of. That's a good point. Um, and it's not, and of course, yeah. And of course with any product, a lot of people are gonna try it and drop out and that's not necessarily a problem, right? Um, you asked about another statistic, which is, uh, could you say exactly what it was again? Yeah, I think it's uh, been advocated for by the CEO and founder of Superhuman. And I forget how it's exactly phrased. I've read that article. It's a great blog post. I love that blog post. Yeah. You know, asking your customers, how would you feel if this product went away and you couldn't use it anymore? And would you be very dissatisfied, somewhat dissatisfied, indifferent, something like this? I think that's a great metric uh, of kind of long-term users, right? So it's like, you know, if, if you have a lot of people who said they'd be really unhappy if your product went away, you're probably going to get to keep them for a long time. And they probably, if you, let's say it's a subscription, they're probably going to subscribe for a long time. So I think it's a really good metric for looking at that side of the business. Um, of course, it doesn't capture everything because you also want to make sure that a new user has a good experience, right? Um, you want to make sure that like you're converting enough of the new users, they understand the value proposition, they find it easy to use, they can get started, et cetera. Uh, so I guess my general attitude the thing that you truly care about, if you really distill it down, is never going to be something you can measure. There's no one metric that will ever measure it. So my preferred way to look at this is not in terms of a key performance indicator where you have like one or two numbers that are like the thing that you're trying to do. What you have in your mind is the true thing you're trying to optimize for, the true goal that you have, whatever that is. Uh, might even be multiple goals. And then all of your metrics, they're just kind of rough estimates pointing at those things, right? So none of them are ever gonna be perfect. I like to measure a lot of them because they each give you a little bit of a different angle. And I think of metrics as coming into two groups. One group of metrics are what I call smoke alarms, where basically normally there's not much to say about them. They're kind of like, okay, you know, whatever. But every once in a while, if one of them changes, you're like, oh, what the heck's going on? Like something weird is happening and we need to understand this. So the smoke alarm metrics, they, they're just kind of, you check periodically to make sure there's not something 
weird happening? Like, why did this price just suddenly go up a lot? You know, our, our acquisition cost, or um, why did usage time used in the app just go way down? That's really weird or whatever. Um, then the other kind of metric are things that are trying to point at what you truly care about, but they're all imperfect. And so you have the whole cluster of them each with like, it's, it's like you're really trying to measure X, but what you really have is just a bunch of noisy approximations of X. And so these kind of give you a little bit of different information. I agree with that. I also think that you can not only be misled by having the wrong metric or too few that are pointing towards that X that you really care about, but also the incentives can push towards a perverse optimization of one metric that doesn't really achieve what you want. Oh yeah, there's a horror story. I think it was Bing search engine where they made a change to the product and they found that a number of searches went significantly up and they're like, awesome, that's fantastic. Number of searches up, that's what we want. We get to serve more ads. It turned out what they'd done is broken the search engine. And so people were searching over and over again because they were so frustrated because they weren't finding the thing they wanted. So really any one metric, if you try to optimize it too hard, you're gonna get some perverse result. That's why when I think about designing KPI systems or metrics that you're looking at, I think about what is the pathological case and then can you design another metric that would check mm. that or catch that pathology in the in the first one. That's a great idea, yeah. yeah. And a common way to do that is to frame it as if you have a quantity metric, think about a quality metric that somehow talks about the same subject area. Yeah, I like that. And it also suggests to high value of qualitative information. Like for example, just talking to customers because what can happen is like, let's say you have some metrics and the metrics look good, but then you're actually talking to your customers and you hear this complaint again and again, right? And you're like, huh, there's something wrong with our product and it's not appearing in the metric because we didn't even know to look for it because we never thought of it before, right? And so um, these conversations with customers are really great for like the unknown unknowns and surfacing them. This has been a great conversation. I think we should start to wrap up. Um, two more questions for you. One is, which book or article would you recommend to aspiring founders? Right, so I think um, the Startup Owner's Manual is a really nice book. Um, and it's maybe not as read as often as it should be. I mean, it's pretty popular, but I think uh, it's a really, it gives you a really nicely laid out framework for thinking about what is this thing I'm doing as a startup founder. Um, so I like that. Uh, reading Paul Graham's essays, that's you know fantastic. So many good essays there, so can't really go wrong with that. Great recommendations. And then in closing, where can people follow you online? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at uh, Spencer Greenberg. I think it's S-P-E-N-C-R. I was missing a letter because I couldn't fit it all. Um, and then uh, I recommend, you can check out our website, which is sparkwave.tech. So it's .tech. And if you were interested in any of those clearer thinking programs, like our intrinsic values test, you can find that at clearerthinking.org. Wonderful. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much, Miles. Really appreciate it. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's Startups for Good all run together, no spaces.com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.